And we're live with Keith Littlewood. How are you, sir? Not too bad. The, the sun has gone down, so I'm trying to stay energetic. Uh, I just interrupted you, but you were describing uh, uh, where you are and what was happening in your life. Yeah, so I, I'm in Dubai, and I've been here for 10 years. Uh, we were supposed to be in Singapore, but we uh, can It was my wife's job. She's, she's in the corporate world, and uh, we were supposed to be moving to Singapore, but and now we can't get in because uh, we're not taking the vaccine. So, you know, uh, we'll probably be uh, moving home um, at some point soon next year, which which ties in with 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 my studies anyway. So it's kind of there's some serendipity from from my perspective, some some disappointment from my wife's. How did you end up in Dubai just in general? Um, well, it was actually again my girlfriend at the time, who is now my wife, um, and she she actually works for an American company. She works for Jack Daniels anyway. Uh, so you know, um, people think, well, what, Jack Daniels in Dubai, and how, how does that work? And it's like it sells a lot out here. So. Um, and it was just, it was a punt at the time. My, my, my youngest was moving to Australia. Um, and I thought, well, why not kind of have a new challenge? But, uh, she's, she's moving to Australia. So I followed my wife out and we've, we've been here for 10 years, but that will be coming to an end soon. Uh, and it's nice and sunny all year round, but when you have sun all year round and there's lots of pollution, I think, uh, you can only stick with that for so long. Miss the, miss the countryside, the scenes, the seasons and, and relatively normal life. Uh, remind me to ask you about your work on pollution. I, I do definitely want to talk about that and, and, and thyroid function. But um, so, OK, so you're, you're going to go to Singapore, but that's like a heavily mandated vaccine country now. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, um, and uh, there's, there's, there's not much play unless you're prepared to, you know, uh, enter into the experiment and uh, certainly not prepared to do that. Yeah, well, we can talk about that more as well. I love Singapore. Like if, if you gave me a place, a few places to live, I think <laughs> I think I would. It was so clean and nice and it was a very comfortable place to be, I think. Yeah, I mean, it can't understate how authoritarian it is. I mean, if you can get by most of the things there, um, uh, you you might do quite well. But it's very green, you know, uh, very contrast to where I'm here, which is, you know, very sandy. And, you know, it's nice when it's just getting towards winter now. So we're just getting below 30 at night time, 30 degrees centigrade, because it's sometimes, you know, above 35, 36 at night time. Uh, we get out into the mountains and do lots of camping with some friends and stuff. But I, I, I do miss the greenery. And that's something that and even clouds when there's no clouds in the sky, it's quite dehumanizing. I've got to the point where I need I need clouds in abundance to make me feel normal. <laughs> Great stuff. Okay. So I was telling you before we went live, I've been seeing you around for a long time. You know, I usually think of Emma Siracus or Rob Turner as like my um, what, cohort or pe people that were kind of learning about Ray at the same time as I was, but I chronically leave out you. And I think you were around this, that same time and you've, I mean, more than 10 years, right? Like when did you first learn about Ray? I, I think the first introduction was at the end of a metabolic typing exam where Sherry Dixon said, you must check out Ray Peak. And that was, I think that was 2009. Um, and I, but I don't think, I moved to Dubai and that's when I just started getting into Ray quite heavily. And I was kind of messing around in it. I don't think it was really, I, I got coached by a mutual friend of ours, Eric Lapine. Oh, dude, who, love Eric. But yeah, and I mentioned this to him. He goes, he goes, yeah, maybe I should go on one day. I said, go on there. Let's get you on. <laughs> I think I've asked him like 10 times to go on the show. I have a huge fan of his. And uh, yeah, keep going, sir. Yeah, and it was being coached by him, getting a better understanding. I, I'd studied functional medicine. I was heavily into the Czech exercise side of stuff for a while. And, and then I kind of got really into, into Ray's work. And, you know, I... I 
I'd kind of been doing a lot of functional medicine tests, like hundreds of stool tests a year and, you know, making lots of money off kickbacks from lab testing and stuff. And I kind of got to the point where Ray's work was starting to make sense. And it does when you've kind of read it for, for quite a few years and gone back over the articles. Uh, and, and yeah, and then it, it kind of kind of involved to going going off to uni to, to study endo because because I really wanted to get an idea of why doctors had such a different view. Um, and yeah, it was, it, was, it was kind of just interspersed with that really, but it was about at the same time I think Josh Rubin was looking at stuff and there's Emma, I only kind of came across Emma about five years ago and she's very cool. Um, and then obviously Rob Turner from Functional Performance Systems and, and, and you and Georgie uh, leading the way. So yeah, it's, uh, I, think, I think there's, a, there's quite a lot of information coming out now, but, but hopefully for a lot of people it makes sense. It, yeah, I mean, that is uh, something... I mean, maybe you could have predicted it, but it seems like Ray is really hitting maybe the alt alt health world, like on Instagram and stuff. A lot of people, uh, I, I mean, it's just he, he's growing in. I think since carnivore, a lot of people that be open to like radical ideas, I think, jumped on the carnivore bandwagon. And then when that doesn't play out to like full capacity, people need a place to go. So they even they either jumped into Ray or they jumped into like Morley Robbins. And so I just yeah. I think a lot of people are more interested in his work right now. Yeah, and I think Ray's, I mean, it's interesting. I kind of uh, compare Ray to Ivan Illich, and yeah. Ivan Illich writing stuff, you know, what he was writing back in the 70s is kind of more more obvious than ever now, how, how, how society's playing out. And I think Ray's stuff is just going to take a little bit more time globally to, to get that that level of, pre, of appreciation. Um, but he's, he's been right about so many things. I, I'm constantly amazed when I go back, and I thought I've – read something with clarity and depth and there's been such a significant piece of information that I've left out or missed. They go, Oh God. Yeah. Why didn't I get that the first time? And I think it's like when you've read, you know, uh, generative energy or mind and tissue for the 10th or 15th time, and there's still something in there that you tend to pick up and go, I didn't, I didn't see that before. Maybe I just wasn't able to perceive it or yeah. The exact same things happen to me all the time. Like you'll, you'll think you have memorized some paragraph he had written and then you'll leave out like this integral part. Like you said that maybe you just weren't ready to perceive or didn't mean anything to you. And then you had an experience and then now it does mean something to you. And that's been the last 10 years, you know, like, um, uh, again, I, I don't think I'm sure you would agree with this, but like I, I think the failure and, and I think this happens to everybody when they get into Ray, they think it's just kind of a nutritional paradigm like, oh, drink some mm. juice and eat some uh, drink some milk or whatever. But I, I think there's just such a incredible de- depth to it. And uh, and yeah, like in Ivan Illich, you you go down the rabbit hole of um, those, the black pill that medical treatment is actually not so helpful most of the time. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it kind of extends to many other things. I mean, I mean, can, I, I I haven't stayed in contact with Ray as much. I, I send him an email like once every year or two. <laughs> and in the beginning, when he was kind of like sending stuff, go go read W. C. Alley's um, Social Life of Animals, or you know, look at Vla- Vladimir Vernadsky. and the, the kind of the 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 explosion of references that come from one or two books that leads you off to other things. It, it's is 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 quite interesting and. I, I think if it's not books from that Ray's recommended, it's books that Eric's recommended. They've been e- equally as kind of you know, you know adding layers to kind of the knowledge around biology and not just biology, sociology, uh, and and you know ha- you know the, the perhaps the medical fraud being perpetuated by by many people globally, which is what I'm. I, I didn't think I was an anti-authoritarian, but I clearly am now, and I, I'm clearly. <laughs> 
clearly an, a, a, an anti-large corporation um, person as well that seems to put profits over over people, which I'm, I'm quite irked about at the moment. Well, we, well, I want to talk more about that as well. Uh, did we, we might have went over it, but what was the thing that got you into Ray? Was there like, uh, was it thyroid? Was it some hormone? What was the, like the hook into his stuff? Oh, I can't, there are so many. I, I always remember the, the, the one, there, there's a couple related to thyroid. One is, you know, that life never gets above cold and clumsy if it, when we, if you don't have thyroid, which I think is great. Yeah, yeah. Another one, I think Zachariah Salazar reminds me about a lot. When, 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 when your thyroid is working okay, you can think about your situation in any way that you choose to. Yeah. And I, I think that perception about, you know, organized coherent biology, giving you the capacity to take in information and deal with it the way that you want to. And, and I think it kind of, you know, it, it kind of transcends nutrition to a degree because everyone's focused on this kind of reductionist testing. And it's like when you get things right, your ability to take on new information and be less dogmatic, it, it, it's there. I mean, that, that's I think that's a beautiful kind of uh, uh you know, composition of everything that he kind of has put out there. And that's what I like. But I mean, I think there are, there are dozens and dozens out there, but I can't think of the others that spring to mind right now. But like uh, metabolism and consciousness and projecting yourself in the future, present and past and assimilating all those things and being able to yeah. ma make decisions without being paralyzed on, on what the, what the right thing to do is. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you know, not getting, I think we've all come to, the, to this place as well where, you know, where your previous nutritional kind of regime and dogma that you were doing, and it was like, can't eat that, can't eat that, can't eat that. <laughs> and even when people come into kind of raise stuff now, you know, like you say, whether he's the ice cream guy or he's the anti-fish oil guy, it's like, <laughs> well, no, it's not that, you know, and there are other things, it's like, you will go out and eat foods that you will enjoy and you'll be able to perceive whether they work for you and add, add to your kind of, you know, you know, uh, components of health uh, and you'd be able to eat stuff that's probably not, but you enjoy the taste and you realize that actually having that every now and then once or twice a week, isn't going to kill you. Um, and I, and I think being flexible about nutrition is, 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 is the, the key thing, isn't it? Is being flexible about and being, uh, having a broad understanding of what different compounds do for you and how they make you feel your perception. And it, like you say, your energy and projection. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think we might, uh, so again, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think, I'm, I don't really think of myself as like a nutrition person per se. I, I actually think of a person is 30 or 40 years old, you know, and they've had a, a, a low metabolic rate for a, a long period of time that there's only so much nutrition can do. <laughs> and so I, I think we might share a, the, uh, an interest in thyroid supplementation, which is one of the reasons I wanted to get you on here because it's such a common question and it doesn't seem like you can put out enough information about it that it just seems you could talk about it forever and people still ask similar questions. And so I just wanted to get yeah. you on here because I think we're both uh, united in our, um, I don't know if uh, the usefulness of thyroid. I, th I think it's so important. Yeah, you know, I, I totally agree. And, you know, there is, uh, there is there are a large percentage of clients that we probably both work with where you see perhaps 60 or 70% do really, really well with just tweaking nutrition, getting adequate light, perhaps restoring carbon dioxide values, you know, uh, and, and some, you know, very just useful changes, whether it's carrot salad, which has done wonders for many people. You know, the simplicity of that is great. But there are a, a, certainly a substantial amount of people that do need the organization of thyroid. And I'm, I'm I wholeheartedly believe in that. Um, and I still think 
that there are people from the functional medicine fraternity to medical doctors that just do not understand the complexity of thyroid and using these binary tests, which I've kind of talked about to death in various other podcasts, you know, of why those kind of blood tests can be completely at odds with, you know, symptomology or, you know, you know, just generally someone's capacity to, to understand whether they're well or not anyway. So um, I, I would agree. And, you know, even if you look at the many aspects of thyroid inhibition from what goes in the thyroid gland from, you know, whether it's kind of one of the one of the components of from organification or trapping of the iodine and tyrosine molecules all the way through up to the receptors. And that's what's really interesting me at the moment is understanding we know that molecular medicine is important to understand, but still, I think a lot of thyroid's beneficial effects come back to the non-genomic effects and how they affect metabolism. Not to say that metabolism doesn't have some kind of genomic kind of background to it. It does. But at the end of the day, you know, like Ray has always said, explaining receptors in the form of the only way that a system works is quite myopic. So you're saying the more important thing is the stimulation of cellular respiration and the thyroid's cofactor for steroidogenesis? Yeah, I mean, all of those things, uh, metabolism, maintaining, you know, uh, optimal, efficient aerobic metabolism, you know, production of ATP, adequate carbon dioxide production, not falling back onto your, you know, um, uh, reductive metabolism. I think that that's key. I mean, I think that's the hallmark of disease. And I, I still... You know, I've done a few courses where whether it's cancer meta metabolism, for example, and still medics and some researchers suggest that an emerging feature of cancer uh, cancer physiology is auto metabolism. It's like it's not emerging; it's been there for uh, you know, maybe even a hundred years of, of, of research, and yet people still see it as this emerging feature. It's like really <laughs> okay. So I'm sure you get this question uh, frequently. And we kind of broached on it, but like, uh, I only want, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll play a person here, but like, I only want to stick to natural things to increase my metabolism. Why, why would I need T3 and T4 to improve my health? Like what, what would be the point of that? Well, yeah, I, I kind of get that a lot. And I, I think I, I kind of lean back to when I, you know, about 15 years ago when I was paleoing, low carbing. And, you know, we always it was always like, yeah, it's got to be natural. It's got to be as as green and clean or brown as it should be. And it's like <laughs> well, if you if you only understand from that narrative, think about the fact that some of the most uh, destructive compounds are actually in the plant kingdom mm -hmm. or, you know, you know, cyanides. It's it's a very, uh, uh, <laughs> very uh, uh, complicated uh, compound to take, uh, but it's all it comes from this natural kind of background where people don't have the capacity. They still see nutrition as this green and brown as the relative wholeness. And I come across clients like that all the time. So I, I kind of said uh, before that I, I consider taking thyroid hormone as one of the most holistic things that you can do yeah. because it organizes physiology at so many levels. Um, uh, and from a component of hysteresis and kind of, you know, if your body's can get the thyroid sorted, you're less likely. And I think where we're seeing that now with, with susceptibility to viruses, for, as an example, is that, that, you know, what we're probably seeing is low thyroid in those people who are majorly susceptible. And if you're looking at cardiovascular disease, hypertension, you know, uh, diabetes, uh, or, or, you know, hypercholesterolemia, the, these are all kind of artifacts of low thyroid function. And yet people are still looking at this very... 
uh, myopic reductionist way and saying, well, yeah, okay, but okay, diabetics are more prone or, you know, hypertensives are more prone. It's like, well, you've got to zoom out. You've got to step back from that. And, and that's why I think restoring thyroid has that kind of big bang as such. And, you know, when people say, well, look, you know, I only want to take something natural. Okay, we'll take NDT then. That's, that's as natural as it can get, right? It's just another piece of food from an animal. Uh, and well, I, I used to think NDT was was a game changer, but actually, since I've been experimenting with kind of like something like Sinoplus and, and Sinomel, I've found that if not better than than NDT. So I've kind of changed my my thought process on that as well. Not to say that I think everybody tends to respond very differently to thyroid. I mean, some people do incredibly well on NDT. Some people do really well on synthetic. Some people do better with a ratio of four to one, three to one, two to one. It, 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 again, it's just, it is trying to find out that, that right strategy for someone. Okay. Well, let's uh, get into that a little bit. So say I'm thyroid, I'm a person you're talking to. I'm thyroid curious. I have high cholesterol. I have a low body temperature, a low pulse rate. Uh, how do you, how do you, how do you get into that? Like, and I, and I have these thyroid hormones in my hand like what what do you think a good approach for starting that is and i know you're well, not yeah. a doctor and this is yeah. not medical advice <laughs> yeah no medical advice at all here. Uh, um, so you've got to get the foundation right first you have to get the nutrition right i don't think it's any good just throwing thyroid in straight away without at least getting someone into into the idea that eating whether it's three regular meals a day or five or six, I mean, I, I, I always think that the, the regular meals each day, uh, everyone takes verbatim. Uh, and I think it's a useful intervention. As a, it's like a pragmatic stress reduction strategy. If you've if you been prone to kind of skipping meals, kind of diving in, just fasting, you know, low carb, it's just, just eating every two, three, four hours, whatever works for you. Uh, and I think people have to kind of understand that you've got to get the nutritional base right first of all. And some people do. And, you know, but still there's... There, there are a lot of negative symptoms there that are suggestive. You know, you're not seeing the temperature raise. In fact, you're seeing perhaps the temperature go down when they're eating, yeah. despite eating really good foods. Mm -hmm. So I'd always start with the, with the food, as I'm sure you and, and many others would do that. Um, and I would also look at – I'm quite interested in looking at any, you know, adjuncts to improving thyroid function, first of all. So it might be understanding what taurine can do. Um, it might be understanding what methylene blue can do from a thyroid availability perspective, because sometimes, and even progesterone, I've seen so many clients that I thought were, were hypo from a female perspective, and again, encourage them to kind of perhaps pursue progesterone use first of all. And I've been really surprised because that has had the uh, like a very much pro-thyroid effect. And I think it was literally just the, the idea that a low progesterone um, would be affected by a higher estrogen, but that doesn't always go that way. And sometimes it's clients that do need thyroid. So I'd be experimenting with a few other things. I'd always be experimenting with carbon dioxide. First of all, again, I've seen some magical changes in people with just bag breathing that I would thought, uh, would, would be impossible, you know, restoration of sleep, uh, improved glucose metabolism, uh, and even, you know, the digestive stuff, whether it's carrot salad or something like bamboo shoots or even kind of things like grated coconut meat as an example, different things that are going to restore uh, someone's digestive capacity. I'm always building on the foundation first to see what happens. And then my advice would be for them to think about experimenting with thyroid. Obviously, I'm not a doctor. I can't diagnose. I would never even dream <laughs> of something that's beyond my pay grade. So it's all about understanding what people are capable of. Uh, and, and perhaps, you know, just uh, 
taking charge themselves and understanding that they're there instead of being in that kind of illichesque cradle to grave consumerism uh, within the medical system, that they're quite capable of understanding what, what, what they're doing and what they can do. Uh, and I, I still don't have I think when I first started getting into supplementing with thyroid, I, you know, people are quite nervous. And you then realize that actually the likelihood of anything negative happening from, from their use and their experimentation is, is so unlikely unless you're at a very immediate risk of having a heart attack and you take a very large dose all at once, which is statistically – you know, it's there, but it's it's virtually it's very minimal. Uh, you know, I you know I've even heard from friends because I, I saw a client once who totally ignored what I said instead of taking you know three drops of um, no seven drops of uh, uh, Tyramax did seven squirts seven big squirts <laughs> and within a week had taken 90, 90 <laughs> drops. She said, you know, I'm starting to feel my heart rate go up, and we got to to what she how where she misinterpreted everything. And it was like, like, your heart rate's going to go up even more in the next couple of days. Yeah. <laughs> Stop. Eat a bit of broccoli. You're going to be fine. Lo and behold, next day, heart rate had shot up to 160 beats a minute and then dropped back down as soon as she stopped the next day to 110, 90, 80, back into the 70s straight away. And I've heard of uh, friends who've, whose mum's done that and they're in their 60s as well. So, you know, it, everything's all manageable from that perspective. And, uh, you know, I think that the... the the risk is always overstated but you know i think if you're getting the nutritional uh, approach right first of all would generally ameliorate that risk anyway because it's it's only in the people that aren't eating enough you know aren't managing themselves well you get again you know something from an energetic perspective that's such a such a big whack that would that, that would take them in the, the wrong direction i think if i remember you talking years ago about le chatelier's principle where something negative should take them away from where they were going anyway but that that's not always going to be the case and it you know that's when you, you are at risk but i think that risk is so overstated it's it's uh it's not to, not to say that it's not there but it is very much overstated yeah i've talked to at least half a dozen people that started thyroid with a whole sino plus tablet so I think that's 2.2 grains to, to start with, you know, and so it's way too much. OK, so uh, this will be difficult to chat about. So for yourself, if you're going to hypothetically start thyroid or something, would uh, how do you feel about amounts to, to start with um, a fourth of a sign? And again, just for yourself, like is there is taking a certain amount too much at one time? How do you think about that? Uh, yeah, I think you can die. You can always dive in with too much. I think I, I remember taking originally the, the Mark Starr's approach where he talked about, you know, jumping with about half a grain, which I think was is always quite useful. Mm -hmm. I've seen some people. Um, I have a lady that I was talking to recently who asked me about what she should do. And I, I sent her to some reading material to <laughs> make this. And we came up with the idea that actually taking an eighth of a Sinoplus, a very small nibble and starting would be the right approach. And it looked like there was some calcification in, in, in her thyroid nodules. And that's always going to be slightly problematic. And I think, you know, even going back to the smallest nibble, even going, if, if you're using Tyromax, you know, even starting with one drop a day, there can be reasons for doing that. And, you know, I think it's always good just to start, I think starting with half a grain or three or four drops um, of NDT, for example, it's just a prudent place to start. Uh, and building up, and that's that's always the approach that I would go. 
despite people who don't often listen to that and still jump in with 10 squirts or, you know, whatever. So uh, you can usually minimize the effect of people not listening if you if you just uh, reiterate that the, you should start on a relatively low dose and build up every 10 days to two weeks. I mean, equally, I think sometimes those non-genomic effects you can actually see on the day. Some people go, I, I've noticed a shift on day one from taking it. I've noticed clarity or I've noticed a bit more fatigue or I've noticed less fatigue. There are some very clear effects from that. But I think I think it's imprudent to, to wait at least 10 days, maybe two weeks before even considering, you know, going upwards. And that's because T4 saturates the tissues over that time. Is that how that works? But I think it's also just to not to the T4. So understand from a safety perspective, it's not getting enough T3. Yeah. Uh, sorry, getting too much T3, and I think that just minimises that effect. But I think you know, it's difficult to say with T4 saturating tissues because I, I, I'm still not too sure whether it's it's just the T4. It, it, it's other things as well going on. You know. Um, could there be something with T2? Could it? Could it be? You know, uh, I mean, there were just many reasons, um, and also just making sure that the nutrients are there to support what's going on with that. So, yeah, I, I just think it's prudent to, to wait and see. And then in Broda Barnes's book, Hypothyroidism: The Unsuspected Illness, he says something like uh, kids and some adults will usually use one grain. Then a lot of adults will use two, rarely three, and even more rare four. Is that is that similar to your experience? Uh, I, and, and I go back to another client, who, a client and a friend recently, who took a whole bottle of um, NDT in a week, didn't even touch the sides, nothing. <laughs> no, 90 grains within the space of a week. Wow. And I think we are probably seeing more. I mean, in Starsburg, it reminds me of a, a researcher. He talked about Zondek, who would use like 10 grains in refractory hypothyroid stuff. And I think we're seeing more uh, issues with uh, thyroid hormone resistance and I think that's a tricky one, whether you still think about going up to super physiological doses. That reminds, also reminds me of the David Derry quote of some doctor that used something like 29 grains in, in, a, oh, wow. in a day just to get a woman out of that. Mm -hmm. And I think we're kind of dealing with interesting territory there because it, I think it, it could be like a, a convergence of low cofactors of some kind, could be selenium, vitamin A, zinc, you know, the usuals. Um, and it might just be that it, it, it could be, um, a, a pollutant that's having that effect as well. Uh, we know that there are certain plastics and like, things like brominated flame retardants that can kind of, you know, bind in the thyroid receptor. Uh, and maybe it has other downstream effects where it doesn't allow the, the non-genomic effects to kind of have this effect. So I, I think it's, uh, I, I think it, it could be that people do need a very, very high dose, but um, again, just going up and titrating that and going very slowly probably would avoid that. I mean, some of the, the, the medical uh, approaches to thyroid hormone resistance are going very super physiological doses, like I think two or 300 um, uh, micrograms of T4 as an example. And again, it's like, well, you, if you're not bringing T3 in, that, that's, that's a bit of an issue. Uh, and some of the issues that I've seen with T4 from a research perspective is that high amounts of T4 could be very problematic to people. Uh, again, I think from the non-genomic effects, because it has an effect on something called, uh, I think it's integrin VB3 or something. I don't know if you've ever come across that. Mm -hmm. And it, it creates fibrosis. And if you've got to see the super physiological doses of T4, I think that that's going to be a problem in itself. But some of the medical approaches have been talking about, you know, 
it, it's coming in, but it's having like a, perhaps like a, a hypothyroid effect on, on the cardiac tissue and you're seeing a tachycardia, very high heart rate. So they're bringing in beta blockers and other things to bring that back down. And I think that's probably not the right way to go because that I, I, and I, I, I've seen various different you know, interventions. I remember a client in Australia, you know, it was, it was a combination of methylene blue and thyroid that she was very hyper from a tissue, hypo from a tissue perspective, mm -hmm. but then her heart rate was responding with, with like tachycardia. And I think that was just, she, she'd been exposed to mold and fires and stuff. And I think the combination of methylene blue with T3 was having quite a restorative effect by bringing the my guess is that it was bringing decreasing the fatty acid oxidation in the in the cardiac tissue, making it more susceptible to car, uh, carbohydrate use, and at the same time restoring some of the um, uh, tissue responsiveness to thyroid, which was quite hypo. You know, gained a bit of weight, very sluggish, brain fog, no libido. But as soon as we brought T3 in, there was like this this change, uh, and uh, then the combination of methylene blue and that seemed to do wonders. So I, I think it's just trying to understand what, and again, coming back to the nutritional components, what are the thyroid cofactors, not just from a nutritional perspective, again, things like taurine and methylene blue, which are having like a, a pro-thyroid effect and increasing the T3 and T4 is quite a prudent way to go as well. That's interesting about the T4 and fibrosis. Um, what, so when you're talking about thyroid, do you usually talk about like a, a higher ratio of one, one to three or one to two or T3 alone to try, try, try to avoid that? Uh, yeah, I mean, so, sometimes I think, uh, again, it's experiment, but it's like saying, you know, with some people with, you do see some people on Luvothyroxine do yeah. really well. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes when you switch them across to something like an NDT or something, they go, I feel lousy on this. And like, <laughs> I'm just quite happy to say that I'm wrong about this. And that, that experience of yours with T4 is working really, really well. And if it ain't broke, don't fix it, as they say. And, and so I just think it's useful to then experiment and bring in. And I think Ray talked about this years ago about just nibbling on T3 throughout the day. Sometimes I don't think you even need to be as um, – methodological and weigh everything out and go, okay, you need 6.5 micrograms here. You need 6.5 here. And I think Paul Robinson, have you ever come across him? Paul? Rob I don't think so. He's got, uh, he's, he's, uh, I came across him last year, but he's written quite a lot on, uh, thyroid health and using T3 mm -hmm. as a monotherapy mm -hmm. about, and taking that four times a day. It's I think it's literally just about, it's a suck it and see approach with each person. So you might find somebody does really well with say, you know, uh, half a Sinoplus in the morning and then tops up with T3 throughout the day. So I, I, I'm rather about the, the, the experiential part of it and people saying, what happens when you try this? And, you know, it might be negative. Oh, I couldn't get to sleep then. Well, okay, you've taken slightly too much. And, you know, bringing it back just from knowing what they're used to taking. And you can be very um, – you know, specific about it. And you can say, and with some clients I do, okay, take another 6.5 micrograms here, or, you know, you can be that. And I think it just depends on the person and what they want from a coaching perspective. Not that I would be telling them to take that, of course. <laughs> I would be saying that you might want to consider from that perspective yeah. and see how you feel on it and feedback. And I can give you some advice on that. Of course. So we synergize in promoting autonomy and in another way doesn't even work. So if somebody is relying on me or you to tell them to take 
more thyroid that 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 doesn't even play out correctly, you know. And so really the only way to do it is to what measure the pulse, the temperature, the Achilles reflex tendon, maybe get the cholesterol checked, the TSH. Like how, how would you how would you go about explaining those things as uh, good markers to gain autonomy with thyroid supplementation? Well, I, I think, you know, again, go back to Ray, he's always said it's a crude but effective way of measuring. And um, I, I, I did a master, my master's degree in endocrinology was looking at that. And I found it really hard to get people to take me seriously because I wasn't a doctor. So in the end, I reached out on social media and said, right, I'd like people to go and have their TSH measured, fill in this questionnaire, uh, take your temperature and pulse and found very good relationships to the idea that TSH was completely normal but yet their temperatures were down, their pulses were down, uh, and their high symptomology was 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 there. Uh, and so I think they are very good tests and uh, to use. I think there are some other nuances. Cholesterol is always valid, um, though you'll always send someone off and their cholesterol will be flagged with a red star saying hi, and it's, it's a completely normal. Um, so I think understanding what a, a useful cholesterol value is, and my approach is I think between five and a half and six and a half is ideal, millimoles or 210 to 250. And there's a relatively useful study in Korea that came out in 2019 that kind of backed that up and said anybody below that tends to die quicker with lower cholesterol. Uh, and I think above that, and I think there are other nuances. You know, you can look at some of the red blood cell markers. You can look at something like RDW, which is quite interesting, that that shows that people are, are hypo. And again, I, I don't think there's any, there's nothing that's set in stone. It's not clear. There's never going to be, your TSH is going to be high. Your T3 is going to be low. Your temperature and pulse are always going to be within that marker. Uh, your RDW is going to be there. It's not, and everybody expresses in various different ways. So, you, and that's why when I met a lot of medical doctors would say hypothyroidism is high TSH, it's a low T4, free T4, and you're probably going to see cholesterol elevated, uh, but we won't generally look at that anyway. And it's that, it's that kind of response. It's like, well, actually, their cholesterol could be low, their cholesterol could be high. Um, and, and there's that whole uh, window of subclinical hypothyroidism that I think is completely problematic and is still undertreated. Uh, and when you go and look at the, the studies that they have, and they go, yeah, well, we treated people with LT4 uh, thyroxine, and it had no changes. And it's like, well, you don't know what they're eating. You don't know what environment they're in. You, d you didn't apply T3 with that. So why do you expect uh, the idea of subclinical hypothyroidism to be so clear-cut when you're just applying one intervention when there are probably a thousand different variables that need to be considered with that? I was going to ask this earlier, but do you notice uh, people with digestive problems having trouble kind of acclimating to thyroid or maybe it doesn't do anything to them when, when their digestion is really messed up? Yeah, I, th I think that's I think it's I think it's valid to a degree. Um, and I think you can always look at some of the topical stuff that they might respond better to. Mm -hmm. I think so, and, you know, I, I think it's been. Uh, quite valid for some people who have irritable irritable digestive tracts uh, and MCT does seem to be a problem for them uh, and I've, I've seen that happen a few times and actually you stop that and switch them over uh, to something either topical or so something slightly easier with the MCT and uh, it does seem to have a very beneficial effect. And then we talked about high cholesterol being indicative of lower thyroid function so what um Again, you're not a doctor, you don't give medical advice, but like if somebody presented with low cholesterol, maybe one, uh, I don't know the um, conversion, but maybe three or four, like really low, like 120 or 130, what would you think about that? 
I mean, it could be could be anything. I mean, could, they could be utilizing cholesterol at a phenomenal rate. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, classically, I think in hyperthyroidism, I think that the general idea is that that, that you're kind of utilizing cholesterol. Um, but it comes back to, to it many different things. I think it could be liver health, it could be uh, cholesterol enzyme production. I mean, classically in low thyroid, you get the kind of cholesterol receptor, and I think it's cholesterol genase or whatever the enzyme is that's classically reduced. But I think it could be that there's something going on from a, a, an illness perspective. It, it, could be, it could be tenets to the diet that are distorting that. Um, uh, it could be uh, an autoimmune issue, if, if kind of you know that that, that people talk about, uh, there could be a number of different reasons for it. So I don't think classically that the, I mean, there, I think there's even components with cholesterol, for example. And I, if you look at say some of the older researchers that said that generally hypothyroid people were more anorexic, I think those people corresponded with low cholesterol values as well because they had low tissue levels, you know, low protein intake. And if the liver's not getting enough protein, that could be another reason why the cholesterol is also looking low in addition to the kind of, you know, uh, low turnover. And then when you were talking about uh, thinking about thyroid with methylene blue, do you think that worked or or tended to work better because of the anti-nitric oxide feature of the methylene blue? Yeah, it's it's quite possible. Um, I mean, it's not something I would always recommend together to anyone, especially to start off with, because they're two very potent mechanisms. And I think with methylene blue as an example, um, it can, you know, I've had a lot of people that said, I don't feel good on it. I feel, you know, a little bit wired or, and it's like, it is going to have a pro-oxidative effect. It is going to have that kind of nitric oxide inhibiting and increasing, you know, aerobic metabolism uh, as a whole. So that if you haven't got your nutrition right, and you're going in with a high dose, um, then, what do you expect to happen? It's like throwing in thyroid without having that um, that base support. But if you throw in both together, I think there are you you probably kind of want to experiment with that both on their own individually before you even think about that. Do you want to talk about your pollution research? Because I feel I feel like that's something very novel and new that you bring to the table, and I, I very interesting. Uh, well, yeah. So I'm doing a PhD um, at University of Reading. Uh, which is six years of my life because I it's impossible to do it uh, full time because I I'm, I'm pretty much a, uh, looking after the kids after school every day and I, I work part time as well uh, so it's not doing anything for my coaching business on any level apart from me making me more stressed out about molecular biology that I know very little about <laughs> but I'm I'm really interested in the idea that multiple pollutants exert very negative effects on thyroid physiology. And yet we keep focusing on heart disease and cholesterol and, uh, you know, antihypertensives as an intervention without understanding that most of these pollutants is a, a very negative effect. And a lot of the old studies, although studies are changing, they were looking at the, the no observed effect at certain dose levels. But what's coming out now is that there are very intricate mixtures and very intricate chemical cocktails. And bear in mind, there are potentially hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of thyroid disruptors. Um, that that impact uh, physiology at a certain level. So the idea of the research is to look at what happens when you apply two specific chemicals and how you rescue them with either a T4 intervention versus a T4 and a T3. And not many people have done that. Uh, And it's not something I can get funding from anyone from. So I kind of took the idea and did a GoFundMe and I've I've jumped into that because I really think it's more of a conversation that needs to be had. 
And you won't get many people researching that because my belief is that it would take too much money away from the single single action medications like statins or, you know, metformin. Uh, and I, I think that's why it's not as well researched as it could be. But my professor, for example, has pointed out that maybe T3 would be a, a better in, uh, intervention with uh, whether it's new, neuro uh, generation, you know, transmitters in the brain working more efficiently. And we know what low thyroid does from a you know a metamorphosis perspective in 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 uh, aquatic life, and we know that how, how it affects you know uh, neurological. Uh, uh, growth in, in fetuses and, and what happens when you don't have enough of that we see in cretins. So I think that there is, there's more and more of that about, and I think there are more intricacies. So the idea was to go in and study that uh, and, and see if I can add to the conversation around T3 being a much appropriate, much more appropriate intervention than T4. I lived in mo- mostly Bangkok for about a year, and I had like a hacking cough towards the end of that, the time there. And I, I wouldn't say, I, I think my health was kind of up and down. I didn't know the, I, I don't know if you heard, but Ray was talking about the problems of living in a very humid, hot area on, on thyroid function. And yeah. so that was news to me. And then towards the end of that time, having a hacking cough, I was like, I, I think I got to get out of here. <laughs> like it, it was not definitely not serving me in any way, shape or form. Uh, do, you, do you know, and then there are so many different things. Like I, I, the place that I'm living in, we've, we, when we moved in here, we were told the AC ducts had all been cleaned, and like a week later, we all came down sick, mold poisoning. And I think the combination of you know people who live in very hot environments that are predisposed to having to live in AC environments as well, the combination of mold poisoning with uh, you know high polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons as an, ex- an example, that that the rates of disease there I think are, are phenomenal. Uh, and you know most of the people who I know who live in Dubai. I just blissfully unaware that the pollution is like, you know, one of the top 10 in, worst in the world. Oh, well, I didn't know that. Just this, this kind of level of brown, smoggy haze uh, <laughs> across across the city most times. And it's like all of these have an effect, but nobody really thinks about them. Uh, and, I, and I just uh, that that's the idea for me. It's, it's trying to trying to enlighten more people about how they can take charge of their health and understanding that the environment is, a, is a, as we know, a big driver of their, their health issues. Well, I was also thinking about when I'd go inside and turn the air conditioner on, like it, it would always smell weird. And I was like, oh, is that emitting some like Freon like gas or something? It just, it seemed very uh, hazardous to, I mean, at least in Thailand, it seemed like it was almost impossible to maintain a certain level of health. Yeah, I, I, I've had a client in Bangkok that I've worked with who's had very similar things that moved uh, moved to the countryside more. And I think, you know, noticed some big changes from that, I mean, and and that's the thing is kind of perceiving that, that these these uh, these kind of polluted urban environments do exert a very negative effect. Do you want to plug your Instagram real fast? So you have a really phenomenal Instagram, Tomo Littlewood, uh, and yeah. then you you're just like prolific on posting on here. I, I used to be. I feel like I've become a bit of a thyroid bore at the moment because the research <laughs> is thyroid. And I kind of like when I first got into Ray, when I was kind of looking at various different aspects and it's like, I just seem to, I need to stop posting about thyroid, but there are so many levels to it. It's like, you know, I was looking at some of the stuff about Pendrin and 
uh, iodotyrosine deodinase and all these kind of other levels of thyroid disruption that I'd never even thought about. So I keep posting about that. And I don't think anybody's interested in it. But when you post something about why you can eat dairy when you take carrageenan out, it kind of blows up. It's like everyone's all over it. Um, I, I need to stop posting some of the stuff I'm researching because, uh, like I said, you know, researching this stuff with molecular, that nobody's interested in it. So it's just pulling it back to some of the, the nutrition stuff, which is on there, yeah. I'm interested in it. And then how do people work with you? So they go to balancedbodymind.com and then they can sign up here? Yeah, it's kind of got my, a lot of my old stuff from when I used to do movement therapy and, and rehab and pain stuff. But I, I kind of stopped that last year because it was unable to work. So I have these coaching programs. Um, I also have like uh, a functional hormones and seminars uh, nutrition seminars, which is about at the moment, it's about 22 seminars on understanding like the hypothalamic pituitary access, aspects of nutrition, iron, a little bit of Gilbert Ling stuff in there, which I'm still uh, kind of working my way around, which is I think everybody is really, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, Everybody understands that to any any uh, really top level, yeah. Um, and you know aspects on 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 cholesterol and interactions between thyroid and diabetes and uh, iron and all things like that. So yeah, it's uh, a lot of different things in there. And then I didn't tell you uh, how long this was. What do, do you have time to talk to? Like the end of the hour? Is that okay? Yeah, okay. I, I, I penciled in ninety minutes, so okay. that, feel free. Perfect. Okay, I, I was like, I never told you how long this was. <laughs> okay, do you want to get into some questions? Is that okay? Yeah, sure. Okay, so this okay, so this first one, could you ask him about what action reverse T3 in the body uh, has in the body? Some people say it um, competes with T3, others dispute this. Um, but that's some, from, from my capacity to understand reverse T3, it's not so much it has an anti-metabolic effect because it, one of the big actions that reverse T3 has is on T, T4. Mm -hmm. So deionates the inner ring, takes it to reverse T3, and then reverse T3 usually uh, is broken down again to T2 as an example. But again, we don't know enough about the metabolic effects of T2 yet, and some people have said that perhaps using that is, is equally as good as T3 sometimes. So I think the idea is to perhaps, and if we go back to the point about um, high levels of T4 causing problems and, and fibrosis when there's a lot of it, I think reverse T3, one of its primary uh, actions is, is against high levels of T4. It can, uh, you know, uh, have an effect against T3 as well. Uh, you know, and it's various deiodinases that tend to work. I've seen D1 and D3 exert uh, uh, an effect against T3 uh, and, and uh, break it, not break it down, but it can be taken to reverse T3 uh, and then into T2. So I, I, there are, there's a school of thought that perhaps looking at some of the reverse T3 to free T3 and total T3 ratios is beneficial. And I think that's quite a useful approach to look at to see if there's, I mean, it makes sense to me that a high level of reverse T3 could be acting as some kind of metabolic break. Um, it may even have some other effects that we still don't know about yet. Uh, but if I look at the actual specifics of this question, um, yeah, I mean, that, that would be my approach with it. Um, really seen noticing huge rise in heart rate or body oh, temperature. I was going to read that uh, next, but, but the one thing I, a question I want to ask you, uh, is cortisol the thing activating the deiodinase enzymes that's converting the thyroxine to the reverse T3? Is that how you understand it? I, I don't know about cortisol. Uh, it's not something I've, I've kind of uh, read anywhere. You might be able to add more to that than me, to be honest. <laughs> Doubt it. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, but, uh, uh, so reverse T3, 
I, I, I mean, deiodinases are important, but again, depends on the distrib distribution, what's going on in the pituitary, what's going on from a, uh, you know, uh, a systemic level. So again, you can't even measure really the deiodinases properly yeah. in humans. It's not something you're going to be able to do, but I, I would say that, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent sure. No worries. Okay. So for someone taking a relatively high dose of thyroid supplement, 120 micrograms of T4 and 40 micrograms of T3, and not really noticing huge rises in heart rate and or body temp, is it worth trying T3 only and dropping the T4? Or is there something else that is worth looking at first, assuming already following PD nutrition principles? Thank you. But I mean, you can't discount the effect of, of, of you know, cortisol being a factor and low cortisol. And I've always, my general approach with that would be using progesterone, particularly in females, to make sure that you have that that supply. But I think uh, if, if you've got the nutrition right, you could always try going to a two-to-one um, with uh, T4 to T3. Um, sometimes, despite the best intentions, there may be increased need for, for more selenium and more zinc. Um, and, you know... But you just don't know sometimes if there's a blocking factor, if there's thyroid hormone resistance. Sometimes you you may need to go up extra extra larger doses than that. And again, if you're if you're trying that already and you're trying you know uh, 120 for, for over 40, you might try going 120 over 80 and see what happens. Fair enough. And then those uh, so continuing with the ideas like starting at the simplest places and then go into the more complex realm. You know. What would you say? I mean, obviously, Ray talks about this a lot, but like the oysters and the liver, like to to, to you, those are phenomenally important. Do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, they're the foundation, uh, and especially, I think vitamin A is a super important one, particularly for females. You know, it, it seems to be an issue if, the, if there's not enough vitamin A, the corpus luteum just doesn't function properly. So, you know, you could you could wade in with with vitamin A and have a, a a much better increase in progesterone just by getting the nutrition right. So, I think that I think that's absolutely essential. And I think oysters, again, that big 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 bang for, from a zinc perspective is always is always useful. I mean, you can go then down the route looking at the other blood other blood tests but I, I i just think if you've got a generally good nutritional base uh and your temperatures and pulses aren't going up then the next point of call would be to try some kind of thyroid adjuncts like taurine or methylene blue and if that really doesn't work then thyroid is going to be the thing for you and, and again it, it it almost takes people through that journey it goes i've tried everything and my temperature and pulses are still low my sleep's not great my digestion's not great my my menstrual cycle my my t levels which could be a deficiency of those anyway aren't improving i think you had then it's a nice lead in to say well look i've given you the, all the information that, that you have to try here this is something that you're going to have to do. And it go, but yeah, but I've been to my doctor. My TSH is like, it's fine. It's 2.5. My T4 is just a little bit, it seems to be okay. And it's like, okay, well, you know, uh, you just give people the information. Uh, and I think the, uh, the argument that actually perhaps that TSH isn't a, a great idea for defining where your t thyroid health is. Yeah. People that say they've tried everything uh, with a few exceptions usually have not tried everything. Uh, in my no. limited experience, uh, the vitamin A, the what's it, pre-albumin or transrethretin that the vitamin A and the thyroid, it's like protein, they both ride around on. Is that right? Yeah. So, um, I, well, 
Uh, transthyroidine is interesting because in rodents it's the main thyroid protein carrier, mm-hmm. but in humans it's probably the second, was considered the second most important. And it, it, you're right, as you know, it, it, it tends to bind T4 and uh, uh, retinoids. Uh, and I think one of the, the biggest problems with that, it kind of almost has a parallel with what's going on at the receptor. So you have the retinoid X receptor and you have the thyroid um, hormone receptor. Um, and I think the parallel of pollutants has the same effect on the binding proteins as it can have on the uh, receptor. Now, perhaps in in the serum, that's probably not a huge issue for humans. But when you cross the blood-brain barrier, transthyretin becomes probably the most important thyroid carrier. And if you're seeing, I know PCBs hijack T4 off um, uh, uh, transthyretin. There's certainly a case for some other things like brominated flown retardants and others, which also had that kind of uh, antagonistic effect on, on the thyroid as well, the thyroid receptors. And also fatty acids. I think, you know, there's a, an abundance of the of PUFAs. You can get an abundance of saturated fatty acids. If you've got loads and loads of fat, it can have the same hijacking effect on, on transthyretin. So um, I, I think if I'm not going off too much at a tangent, is was the, it was that the, these are important? Yeah, they are, certainly. But um, yeah. Just while we're on the topic of fat solubles, what is your take on the vitamin D controversy these days, the colocalciferol? I, 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 I still haven't seen that. that you, I know you had a, a, a debate with Kitty and I still haven't seen that yet. I'm, <laughs> I sit on the fence with vitamin D. I do think the most important component is light. Uh, and to the extent that um, people who perhaps may some people may benefit from supplementation who do not get much light throughout the year. I think it's interesting that kind of people that hold on to more uh, adipose tissue contain more vitamin D and therefore exercising can release more vitamin D. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I find that an interesting one because obviously it's fat soluble and fat soluble vitamins in people with more adipose tissue would generally contain more of these fat soluble vitamins. So perhaps exercising and releasing them in tandem with appropriate carbohydrates as well would be useful, not going in and fasting and then liberating all these kind of fatty acids with just for their vitamin D content. I think that would be problematic. So I, I'm always of the uh, idea if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. I would much rather people got adequate light. If people do benefit from vitamin D supplements and they feel better for it, I'm going to go down that route. Um, but again, it, it, it's horses for courses sometimes. Fair enough. There, I guess their argument or the internet argument is that the storage form or colocalciferol is not actually desired. It's the active 125D calcitriol. That's the one. But when you look up the calcitriol, it's associated with uh, not only parathyroid hormone, which activates that one alpha hydroxylase enzyme that makes it, but also prolactin growth hormone. It's associated with like every bad thing that can happen in the body. Right. Okay. Uh, from the supplement form. Uh, well, they're saying don't take colocalciferol, and they're saying it it will convert into 125D calcitriol, but that enzyme that converts them is dictated by parathyroid hormone, and parathyroid hormone is invariably suppressed by taking colocalciferol and eating, eating calcium. Are you not aware? Right, yeah. I, I, I hate to spring this argument on you. This, this is just something that's going on in the internet right now. Yeah, no, I, I, I haven't really looked into it with that, that much uh, interest, to be honest, because I'm so focused on being no a thyroid board. No um, but, um, yeah, I mean, 
that it's always prudent to keep parathyroid low, as you know. Um, and I, I think if you uh, if you're, I, I think it just comes down to the argument about does it actually do that. And is that something that's happening? Uh, and I would need to go away and look at all the intricacies of that because it's not something I, I'm spending any on any any time on. No worries, no worries at all. Okay. Okay, Keith, my adrenaline is phenomenally high due to being hypothyroid for so long and have adopted a disposition of fear for most of my life. It seems like thyroid works better for me when I block adrenaline with something like uh, propranol. How do you say that? Propranol? Propranolol. Pro <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. Do you have any experience in combating this issue? As I don't like the thought of having to use uh, propranol uh, indefinitely. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, this is where I think something like carbon dioxide can be really useful uh, for bringing adrenaline down. You need the base of having adequate blood sugar regulation. So, I mean, trying something like that. I mean, Sometimes, you know, with adrenaline and, and fear and anxiety, there are some emotional components in there. Um, and I think this is where kind of getting thyroid can, down can be useful. But I think also talking to people about issues is a very good way of understanding what, what's driving it. Is it a biochemical response or is it really created by the, 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 the limbic and emotional responses of the person? And, you know, the, the people, the person saying here that the thyroid works better when they block adrenaline. I honestly don't know propranolol. It's not something I've, I've, I've come across in any of my research, but it sounds like it's an adrenaline blocking issue. And there are a number of things that we know that you can do to block adrenaline. Uh, and, you know, usually some, sometimes these people, um, they might be hyperventilating and, and heading towards a respiratory alkalosis, which might kind of have that issue with uh, uh, getting rid of excess amounts of carbon dioxide as well. So I think, carbo you know, what do you like at altitude? What do you like when you bag breathe, even doing something like a buteco, like a 555 hold? What are the effects of that uh, before going down the, the, the medical route of that? I mean, you know, sometimes as well, some people do really well with something like Cipro, right? And, and, and blocking the serotonin response, which can be useful. Do you have any experience with actually breathing in from a tank or filling up a bag or anything like that with actually like pure carbon dioxide? No, I've, I've only ever used um, uh, bag breathing and kind of standard breathing techniques. Um, but from what I gather from, from some people, it works really, really well. I haven't either, but my, my friends are going to a town over here and they, I, I think they're going to buy a tank. So I'm very excited. Um, Okay, there was, I think there was a question I was going to, uh, okay, never mind. Okay, this one, uh, you kind of already addressed this, but what are your thoughts on NDT products such as Tyromax? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've taken Tyromax before and I had I had some really good um, uh, responses with it. I, it was muddied for me. I, sorry, but go off a story here, but I was being poisoned by my dishwasher. Um, <laughs> and I, I presented to the hospital once and I could have sworn it was the NDT. But after cutting out the dishwasher tablets, I kind of got regained my health and, and I blamed Tyromax. But I think Tyromax is really, really good. Um, and I think it's really just working out whether you do better with NDT. I know I can go on to an NDT and as long as it doesn't have too many fillers in it, like, you know, some of the other supplements are starting to not be as good quality. You know, I think uh, when it was around uh, Nature Throid and West Throid were really, really good at one yeah, point and yeah. they, the quality seemed to drop off and just didn't do what they were doing anymore. I don't know if that's not the case. So it takes it to tile them with that brush, but I've certainly found like NDT, like Tyromax really, really good. Again, it comes back to the question of sometimes digestive irritation, whether you can tolerate MCT as well. Um, but I, it's really just, an, it's an experiment. Find out what's, what works best for you. Yeah. WP thyroid used to be phenomenal. I took it, I think in 2017. And then I had been receiving emails probably in 2000, 
I, I swear, like 2019, 2020, and people were saying, hey, I'm taking this. It doesn't feel like it's doing anything. And at first I was like, oh, it could be other things, you know? And then I kept getting so many of those emails. And then I swear it was like uh, late 2020 or something. I might, the timeline might be off here, but they sent out an email to everybody saying, hey, everybody, sorry, the potency of our product is, turns out it's way less than we had been <laughs> advertising. And I was like, I was like, oh my, oh my God, I can't believe all those people emailing me, they were really intuitive and they figured out that it was lack of potency, like way I wasn't taking it at the time. I was taking Sinoplus and Sinomel, but that's where kind of, uh, like you said earlier, synthetics kind of have a up on natural products because you, at least you know exactly what you're getting with the synthetics. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Um, I, well, I think Tyramax, uh, have there ever been any uh, issues with Tyramax from that front? I mean, I found some people also do really well on Tyramix and then some not so good as others. And, you know, I, you know, but again, yeah, I, th I think it, it was useful that people were going, this isn't working for me. And it's like, well, okay, well, at least it came out. Because, I mean, sometimes some companies just aren't that great at communicating the fact that their product's really crap. And just that, you know, you just get kind of made to believe that it's just you and nothing's working, whatever you do. Yeah, take-home message. If you have a bad experience with one thyroid product, it doesn't necessarily mean you'll have a bad experience with another one. No, yeah. absolutely <laughs> okay, thanks for that, Keith. Okay, um, let's. Uh, pl okay, please. His advice on hypothyroid person already on lots of T three one hundred. Is this the same? Oh, one hundred twenty micrograms a day, divided in six doses with persistent persistent edema on left side of the body, all body uh, lymphedema as well. She also has mitral pro uh, mitral prolapse, all, a little skipping pulse. Any thoughts? Um. So Sometimes there can be structural and kind of neurological stuff that drive into one side of the body. Um, even if it's, it might even be sometimes it, something as innocuous an ankle injury driving that. As, oh. I mean, drawing some kind of old structural and, and rehab stuff. Um, so sometimes it's worth getting that checked out from from a neurological perspective or from an injury perspective. Uh, a mitral prolapse is usually associated with thyroid anyway, isn't it? So. Um, there could be other things at work here. It could be serotonin that's uh, uh, having an issue here. I mean, uh, you know, is nutrition on point here? Is everything going right there? Uh, does that does, does this person actually need T4 as well? Yeah, just, I've talked about it many times, but I, I can't control symptoms without T4. So it's like very important for me. I, I didn't even pick up this when I was reading it, but 120 micrograms divided into six doses. So that means she's taking 20 micrograms at a time. That's that's way too much to take at once. Yeah, sorry, I thought she was talking about T4 there, but yeah, that's quite a lot of T4. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't pick up on it either. Yeah, if, if, if you're taking quite a lot of T3, you're, you're, uh, that much T3, your heart's going to be working uh, very well. I mean, how old is the person? What injuries do they have? What's the nutrition response? Any other medications that they're on? It's really difficult to give a, a kind of uh, a nuanced uh, answer to this. Yeah, I don't, I, this, I, in retrospect, I wouldn't have read this question. <laughs> the, um, do, do you know anything about back on the T3. Um, <laughs> what? Uh, do, you know, do you know anything about if you take in too much T3, apparently the liver makes enzymes to destroy it? Do you, have you ever read about that or know anything about it? But um, it's interesting because it, in, in pollution, for example, some of the pollutants that, that thyroid is exposed to will increase the, the upregulation of like, certainly from a molecular perspective, you've got the, the receptors like the, the car receptor, the pregnine X receptor, and they also have specific enzymes. There's one enzyme called the UDGPT, which is uh, glucuronidase uh, based. Mm -hmm. So you do... When, um, 
it's likely to suggest that these these um, compounds that are very similar to thyroid can have that effect by activating those receptors, upregulating the CYP genes, upregulating the, the the actual enzymatic responses as well. So yeah, that that's that probably follows that pathway as well. That also when there's excess excess T3, you will produce large amounts of probably reverse T3 as well, uh, and uh, probably other mechanisms as well. But the liver ultimately is where it's going to have to be degraded. So yeah, that makes total sense. Well, that, so that's a point of controversy. T3, you're saying T3 can be converted into reverse T3? No, I think reverse T3 can have an effect. Um, I think it can help, help with uh, like deodinase 3 for an, as an example. So deodinase 3 will have an effect by degrading T3, mm-hmm. but also increasing amounts of reverse T3 as well. It, it, I, I think it depends on what's going on with T4 as well. So I, I, it's probably likely that excess thyroid hormones will, will probably have uh, a reverse T3 response generally, I think. Great stuff. Thank you for that, Keith. Um... Okay, we already talked about timing, right? You you said, do you want to touch on that for a second? This timing of thyroid, are you opposed to taking it at breakfast, lunch, or, or dinner? Or do you have any preference? Uh, personally, I think starting in the day, and again, it, it comes down to, to nuance with the person. Again, some people you can take it a little bit before, but sometimes taking it with food is useful. Um, I'd rather start with something in the morning and then kind of you know, utilized throughout the day, but then I've some, some people who've done really well with just one dose in the morning. So it really does depend. But I think that the additional T3 doses throughout the day can be useful. And I've seen some people do really well nibbling T3 before bed. And some people that, you know, having anything that kind of ramps the system up act, acts as a kind of stimulant to stop them sleeping. So again, it's, it's taking it by ear. Great stuff. Okay. Uh, Carter Chad says, as one of your early longtime followers, we get the metabolic approach to health and diet. So it's always nice to hear a discussion on solutions that align with metabolic approach. Uh, so what is Keith doing to prepare for what's coming in regards to Agenda 2030, planetary shutdowns, et cetera? Thanks. Uh, I don't know about that. Uh, I'd try, try and probably put a head on sand and say, what are you talking about? Uh, but given <laughs> everything that's going on with um, uh, current global strategies, um, I'm quite keen to just getting finding a place in the country that's my own little castle and uh, removing myself from society. And, and uh, I, I think to a degree, Matt Blackburn is quite a, a good good approach, right? Going off grid and being totally self-sufficient. I don't think it's ever going to happen in the UK, but I think to the point that you're kind of left on your own where you don't have to, you know, if anything that the last year taught me is like, I want to be in a place where I, I'm left to my own devices and be left alone. I don't think that's totally possible because there's always going to be some level of uh, sufficiency. Um, but, you know, generators in the house, growing your own food, um, uh, being able to hunt and all the other things. I was in the army 30 years ago, so I know some basic stuff, but I kind of, uh, that, that was beaten out of me uh, over the 30 years when I kind of realized I didn't like being told what to do. So to a degree, I think I'm in a, in a good place of trying to uh, weigh out what's coming and uh, what I can do to mitigate uh, some of these, uh, uh, you know, global orders. Did you say earlier that you were planning, the plan was to go back to the UK? You're not scared about like a vaccine passport or something? Like not being able to buy food or something if you go there? No, that doesn't worry me. If anything, I mean, like everybody is aware, there have been huge protests going on. Mm-hmm. And in the UK, you know, one of the reasons that uh, some of the stuff has been put off, whether government like they're 
deciding to ignore what the JCVI said about uh, vaccinating uh, kids. Uh, you can see that the government tends to ignore good advice anyway. But I think uh, I think there'd be some pressure to bring it in. Whether it, it happens, uh, I think there'd be quite a lot of resistance still. And I, I kind of applaud the people that have been protesting. Uh, I think it's very important to do that. So, um, but equ equally, there's going to be a lot of that globally. So you, I think you've just got to pick your place. Uh, make your bed and line it and see what happens. But I think if, you know, I've, I've done so much traveling, I've traveled to many countries, I, I go back to a, a place and kind of set my foot in uh, and, and uh, settle down. I don't think that's going to be too much of an issue. Great stuff. And then uh, similar lines, um, I'd like to hear Keith speak about any mitigating strategies post-vaccine. I understand that the general consensus is to avoid it entirely, but for those who cannot and livelihood depends on this action, uh, thank you. Oof, uh, I mean, yeah, uh, not my medical advice because I don't give medical advice. Um, I think methylene blue could be a solution here. And I've actually I've worked with someone that was injured by the MMR vaccine, an adult uh, who had to take it twice in the space of a, a couple of months for her job. Uh, and actually, she was suffering very bad brain fog. And I think the problem is, is if any particles uh, do cross the blood brain barrier, that that's going to be a particular issue for central nervous system issues. And my main uh, one of my main beliefs about the current untested longitudinal testing safety trials that, that are missing from this is that what's happening to the blood brain barrier, if you believe in the concept of the blood brain barrier, I know it's contentious, but equally there, there is a point where things cross over into the brain. Uh, and uh, however well organized, whether it's, you know, um, ion absorption and all the other uh, uh, things that tend to go on with that, is that, that it, you can get uh, these particles accumulating in tissues. And that seems to be quite uh, well referenced by people who are in the know there, whether it's accumulating testes over his bone then it's going to be uh, accumulating in, in the central nervous system. So I think it probably could be having an effect on dementia, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's like states that probably aren't going to be showing up, but they will be showing up perhaps a lot earlier in people. That's just a, a, a thought I have about that. So I think methylene blue, which can, can promote some integrity around the central nervous system is going to be particularly useful. I think aspirin seems to be a, 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 a useful uh, 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 compound as well. I think vitamin A, I think light, getting red light is going to be essential as well. Some people have talked about something like pine tree, and I really don't know the, how the, the pine, pine needle tea or something like that. I really don't know what the, the compound is associated with that. But I think it's a, it's, it sounds um, perhaps one-dimensional, but any uh, because we talk about it all the time, but anything that restores order, it could be carbon dioxide, it could be methylene blue, it could be pregnenolone, it could be progesterone, it could be thyroid. And I think, you know, one of the well-known effects of, of, of the vaccine is actually suppression of thyroid hormone in T3, mm -hmm. uh, whether you get sick from COVID or not. And the suppression, uh, usually there's an immediate suppression of thyroid hormones anyway, and you'll get a ramp up of perhaps cortisol and adrenaline that's dealing with the threat. Uh, and depending on how chronic that is, I mean, we, I, we know, but perhaps one of the suggestions with long COVID is probably thyroid suppression, much like it is with anyone if people say they have Lyme disease or they have, you know, uh, any kind of other viral thing. It's it's suppression of organized responses. And to the extent that you can bring all of these adaptive compounds in to restore function, which might not be in this kind of linear uh, response that everybody wants, it's going to be very up and down and, you know, good days, bad days. But there are, seems to be a, a number of people that haven't been affected and there seems to be a lot of people that have been. So how you respond is probably going to be dictated by your biology. 
So, so a lot of people will say, uh, they'll talk to me and they'll be like, you know, I'm taking finasteride and I know I notice no difference at all. Like my, I don't have any symptoms. And that actually kind of worries me <laughs> because it's like, OK, you deleted dihydro dihydrotestosterone and you notice no difference. Like, does your is your quality of life just the worst thing imaginable? You know, and so when, when somebody says they've taken a vaccine that has obvious, I mean, it's made to produce inflammation and they notice nothing from it, that it's, it's kind of like. Doesn't really speak volumes about how great their health is already. Yeah, I think that, that, that you're right. It's like some people just are so you know when I send out forms for intake forms for working with clients, you see a lot back where they, there was and you would score things from zero to three, and I would get forms back where there was nothing ticked. And I'm like. <laughs> and they said, Said, but you have all these health issues that you're coming to me with. How can you not have these flags coming up? And it's like some people are so totally unaware of what their function's like. And they go, yeah, I go to toilet normally. And it's like you go to toilet twice a week when you speak to them. And it's like, you know, there's so until you actually ask specific questions and get them to think about something. So somebody might have headaches. They might kind of feel fatigued. And it's like, but that's such a normal part of their life, you know, that is normality. And until you kind of get them to understand where good health is, what it's like to kind of feel and experience getting up, feeling relatively motivated or, you know, kind of doing something that's a little bit more challenging or creative or something like that, people, uh, they're blissfully unaware. So, yeah, it's, I uh, think it's interesting. Ray had a paper, we, I think it was called by a guy named Picard or something where he said, once a cell accumulates so much calcium that it becomes completely um, like you can't stimulate it, it will just be totally um, ignore any kind of stimulation. And so that's if you magnify that or on a macro lens or something, that might be what's happening to people. They're just completely immune <laughs> to signals and things in the environment of what's going on. Yeah, it's kind of almost like, you know. <laughs> It's, it's almost like a very much ling-based kind of concept, isn't it, about accumulation of calcium, like it's excitotoxicity, uh, where calcium is just rampant. And perhaps also you might see kind of elevations of parathyroid hormone, example, and you know, there's not good calcium regulation. But it's literally that the, the whole system could be has been on high alert for so long. It, it does. It can't differentiate kind of, you know, downtime to kind of, you know, ramped up stress responses. And I think that's, that perhaps that's when you see all the symptoms in people and you're looking at them and you go, really? You feel great? It's like, well, <laughs> it's to each their own. Beautiful. Great stuff. OK, this is from your like number number one fan. Uh, thanks for having Tomo on. Where does Tomo come from, by the way? I'm from Kent in Tunbridge. Uh, uh, sorry, Tunbridge in Kent, which is in the UK, uh, sometimes referred to as the Garden of England. Uh, I think it used to be, not so much now, uh, just outside London originally. Awesome. Okay. Uh, many women complain about being on progesterone, but love estrogen. Is this because taking progesterone is liberating years of stored estrogen? And what can be done to remedy this? But love estrogen. Um, so if I get this question right, many complain about being on progesterone. I think it comes, you know, I have seen more female clients respond to progesterone and seen some amazing things like getting pregnant. I've worked recently, I've worked with a type 1 diabetic 18 year old um, in Australia. And I, you got to a point where she was, she was bed bound if she was having uh, her menstrual cycle. And now she's like, 
said it's gone. And I've seen so many females respond so beneficially to progesterone. Does that mean that low progesterone is the case for all females? No, it doesn't. And there could be interactions with estrogen. But to get to the specifics, is this because progesterone is liberating years of stored estrogen? I'm not sure it, it probably does. If anything, it should regulate the the, the, the reduction of estrogen, which is, you know, is, is something that happens at the liver. Um, the problem is, is that if, if, if there is an abundance of estrogen and someone's holding on to it in adipose tissue, increased aromatase, it, it's really hard to get perhaps the, the beneficial effects of progesterone. And this is where perhaps thyroid might be an essential component for, you know, um, I've used the word metabolizing of, of estrogen at the, at the liver. Uh, and again, there could be it could be issues with B vitamins. I mean, estrogen decreases the amount of B vitamins that are available. And at the liver, that's an essential component of of uh, we could use the word detoxifying of estrogen. So I think there are again other other components that I've seen progesterone generally cause an increase um, to libido for females. I've even seen the increased libido in guys. Um, interestingly enough, and uh, I, I think many of the consensus is that you know progesterone might tank guys' libidos, but that's certainly not the case. Uh, in, in some of the clients that I've seen. I would concur with that. And so maybe this, he's talking about the love of estrogen being like that cocaine-like effect of this stimulation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, but many complain about being on progesterone, but love estrogen. I mean, <laughs> I, I do find that a lot of females, and I don't mean to generalize here, are very keyed up to being running around on stress hormones and keeping themselves busy and busy and busy because they don't like shutting down yeah. because when they shut down, they actually have to stop and think about what's going on. Uh, and it is that kind of almost like what Ray talked about. They, they prefer, you know, running over and breathless exercise over, a, you know, a stimulating life yeah. as an example. And, and so I think it is, it's, and sometimes you have to stop and ask yourself what's working and what's not. Sometimes you don't like stopping. You don't like to have to deal with who you are because there are questions that you have to answer that might be life-changing or, you know, involve a, um, you know, a rapid kind of uh, removal from where you are. So I think that that might be the issue. But I, I do think, you know, understanding that progesterone doesn't work always that well in, in females, especially when there's a thyroid issue. And I don't mean to say just for women, I, men can, I think it has the same yeah. effect. Like it, I've talked to men that talk like so fast and for so long, you know, it's clearly under the influence of estrogen. And I know cause um, I, yeah. I've had that feature myself. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, no, no. That thing is where they just don't stop talking and talking and talking and talking. <laughs> it's like, just slow down for a minute. It's like, it's, don't say anything, just five minutes. <laughs> And it's then quite it, hard. Yeah. People don't like silence. I kind, of, I kind of love silence to a degree. But yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's certainly a factor. And then did you ever get into PM Weiss's work? And I, I, I guess her thesis was that the estrogen is mitigating the, the decreasing the secretion of the gonadotropins that become a huge problem in menopause. And, but it's doing that by destroying the pituitary. Like you're taking out your pituitary to decrease the secretion of gonadotropins. Well, I haven't seen that. It's interesting. Please send that to me. It was a right thing. If you, I'll definitely send it to you. Okay. So the second part of this question was, uh, why would progesterone? Uh, okay. We already talked about libido. Um, uh, thanks. And I really have been looking forward to this show for a long time. Uh, tumble sensei. <laughs> okay. Let's, uh, move on to, you've done a, obviously a lot of work on the unsaturated fats. And this is a, a big paradigm shift for a lot of people, although it's getting more popular these days. Um, okay. So could we go deep into omega threes? I understand that poly, the poly aspect of multiple bonds being unsaturated 
and therefore more prone to oxidation. I just don't know if that's uh, if it's that simple. Could there possibly be an be important or vital mechanisms of action that Ray is missing by focusing on the oxidative capacity of the multiple unsaturated bonds? So how do you look at that? Do you know, I, I, this is something I come back to all the time and I've kind of looked at it a lot in the past and then sometimes like, you read stuff and I go, maybe I'm really wrong about this and maybe Ray's really wrong about this. <laughs> but there are just some things to me that still kind of eke in the back of my mind about omega-3s. And I think Chris Masterjohn's just put out something out about um, omega-3s being helped in COVID and yeah. I need to go and look at that. But I, I still think that... Um, it depends how you look at cellular structure. It depends how you look at how the cell functions. And if you've looked at, say, um, Ling and, and, and uh, Pollock's extension of Ling's work, is like, is there actually, if we're, if we're talking about fatty acids at the cell as an example, the cell seems to function really, really well when you deplete fatty acids out of it. And it, the PUFAs and omega-3s are the first to go because they're the most easily oxidized. And this is the thing is that people are talking about omega-3 to 6 ratios and why you need to have a higher amount. And, you know, is this associated with earlier death? And it's like, I think a lot of the studies where they're looking at kind of risk mitigation with cardiovascular studies, they're looking at relative risk. They're not looking at absolute risk and events most of the time. They're making a calculation primarily by lowering LDL cholesterol, just, and that's a cardiac risk factor. And so if you, if, you, if you lower that down and your system and algorithm is built on the fact that you perceive cardiac risk based upon LDL levels, it's like you are going to see a problem. And, 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 but it's understanding that still that cholesterol is not the, the primary reason of why people get heart disease. It's like calcification of arteries. It's like you know, uh, poor function of and uh, relaxation of cardiac tissue. And I think this still comes back and it gets more complex when you start looking at it within the cell as an example, is that, you know, does the lipid bilayer exist or is it an artifact? What happens when you saturate with the higher fatty acids? Well, something that seems quite clear, and if you look at, I've talked about this before, because a lot of the studies with, with chemotherapy, some of them are using DHA now mm -hmm. because it makes the, 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 this membrane so per, well, permeable. Uh, it, the, you know, the action of pyroptosis and this inflammasome response where it basically punches holes in, the, um, in, in the, this cellular, cellular membrane. And it's interesting because there is a link with graphene oxide. Um, and although th there's some contentiousness about well, pe whether people have found graphene oxide, oxide in, in vaccines, there are plenty of papers that have shown graphene oxide as a delivery for certain vaccines. And that's undisputable. You can go and look at that in PubMed. Mm -hmm. Now, graphene oxide and DHA have the same mechanism. It's when there's an abundance and it's applied to the cell membrane, it punches big holes in it and makes it quite leaky. So you get these le very leaky membrane. And what's interesting about Gerald Pollack's work, he said that you can go and punch very large holes in the cell membrane and it still doesn't leak. But if you apply DHA to the cell membrane, it gets very, very leaky. Mm -hmm. And I think that's in part because it's so unstable. It oxidizes, it flip-flops in the membrane and creates th these vast problems. And just coming back as a side point on that, uh, have you ever read the stuff about AJ Hul uh, Anthony Hulbert? The, the, he's a... Uh, he came up with a membrane pacemaker theory. Mm -hmm. So he said that uh, organisms with the highest fatty acid content had uh, very high metabolism but died very quickly. And, he's, and he said that was the cost. And it, it comes back to the naked mole rats that has the least amount of uh, uh, fatty acids in, right, and tends to live a lot longer. So he was saying that uh, – 
omega-3s are very, very important because they speed up metabolism, but there's a cost to that. And I, I find that quite interesting, but he wrote a very big piece back in 2000 on thyroid hormones. It's um, just a, an overview of thyroid hormones. But he said that also thyroid hormones can be found in this kind of membrane. And he thinks that T3 is acting as a cellular antioxidant. Well, I think it does to a degree from a carbohydrate perspective, because if you have enough um, T3, then you have enough oxidative metabolism. You don't fall back onto the reductive mechanisms. So I think it, it is an antioxidant. But even he was said that, that perhaps this is this is an artifact of the, of the problem of having um, when you do the, the, the actual uh, cell analysis. So I think it, it's it, I've kind of digressed slightly and I wish I hadn't. Um, <laughs> it's, when you when you flood when you flood cells with omega threes, you make them very very unstable, uh, and to a degree that even omega sixes tend to can, tend to rescue the problem. Mm -hmm. um, but I think if you don't have enough vitamin E available, if you don't have enough have an, uh, uh, of the, the antioxidants, and I think from a, a cell component, uh, I think it's one one in one thousand to to phospholipids and vitamin E, and then in in like the 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 um, cytoplasm, there's a certain amount of vitamin C in there. And if there isn't enough of these, this is where you're going to see problems. So I do think part of the problem is an excessive poofer. I do uh, think that particularly from a, a dietary perspective, oxidized poofers is, is, a, is the, the biggest problem. Uh, but, you know, you keep seeing lots of things where you have to go back and question. If you use Google as a search engine and you type in omega-3s, all you're ever going to see is beneficial studies saying how wonderful they are, how they tend to decrease, um, uh, you know, cardiac risk and, and all of these other things. But from an absolute risk reduction and like long-term events, I, the, the studies aren't looking at that. And that's where you have to look at. And I think this concept of, of pyroptosis um, that, that is like a kind of programmed inflammatory cell death needs to be considered. And it kind of almost looks at the, if you bring it back to the component of the central nervous system as well, where there's a bit of a paradox between dementia and Alzheimer's, uh, dementia and Parkinson's, is with Parkinson's they've shown that actually an abundance of PUFA is associated with worse, worse Parkinson's outcomes. And with dementia they're saying that actually there's a low amount of PUFA. But I think it's slightly different because, you know, um, dementia is associated with or sometimes termed type 3 diabetes, right, because it's it's poor use of a central nervous system glucose. And I think all that is is that um, uh, DHA is being utilized at a very high rate because it doesn't have the metabolic flexibility to utilize glucose. So it's going to start pulling uh, DHA and the other phospholipids and, and, and the other fatty acids out the cell to be used. So I think there's this, this paradox that everyone thinks that it's, you know, low omega-3s is associated with um, worse outcomes, but they're still look, looking at a very different systems perspective of biology. The, Does that make sense? Yeah, I yeah. Ramble too much. No, 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 no worries. Um, the, to say something good about the omega-3s or the ecos of pentahook, Pentanoic acid is that EPA that that interferes with COX or cyclooxygenase too, right? And it it can lower inflammation at like a great expense. And so, do you think that's part of the confusion as well? Is like people are saying, oh, this is a good this is a good thing it's doing, but it also causes lipid peroxidation and um, isoprostanes and neuroprostanes and all these bad things that not not a lot of people talk about. Yeah, and um, you know the inflammatory response is protective, right? Sometimes it's it's a protective response. So if you're lowering that protective response, how do you know what the pathway is? Because it's like robbing Peter to pay Paul. 
uh, and I think that's the, that's that's the concept is that we're looking at certain mechanisms in in a very reduced manner. And I think, well, we'll soon see over time, you know. And I I, I, I try and have a healthy uh, regard for me being wrong all the time. Um, I try and try and have that, and I, I I'd rather be wrong. Go okay, I've made a mistake there. And with omega threes, and you know, there's such a. I've seen some very well known nutritionists, you know, talk about Ray's. Oh, he's just that old demented guy. Do, do you want to <laughs> you want to to him, or do you want to look at the research? And it's like, well, everything else he's talked about seems to be right so far. Um, you know, whether it was serotonin. I remember studying a, a course on sleep biology and serotonin. I'd already come across Ray's work about how serotonin was going to keep you awake. And lo and behold, in the sleep biology course, we're saying, yeah, it's not a neurotransmitter for sleep. It's actually a neurotransmitter for wakefulness. <laughs> um, and they, they, they looked at genetic knockout mice and shown that um, that actually the, the reason why that the, the knockout had an effect is because the um, it was eradicating the serotonin. So, you know, everything else is added up. And so uh, there's no smoke without fire. Uh, and I think it's when you look at the long term effects, I mean, you only have to look at things, you know, the aging and, you know, onset of lipofuscin, um, aging in tissues and how that corresponds to kind of systemic kind of aging and degradation of biology. And I, I, I think, I, you know, I, I sometimes sit on the fence, go, I'm wrong, but I, I kind of think he's right when you look at these, uh, these kind of uh, distorted inflammatory mechanisms. Before one podcast, I was saying like, Ray, what are, what are you going to do if they go door to door uh, for vaccination in Eugene? And he was like, oh, I'll just tell them I'm a very old man. And like, I don't know what's going on. And I I think that's like so hilarious because Ray is like one of the most with it, like not senile people I've ever talked to. He's like so on the ball and he reads every single thing. You know, he's like he's like more up to speed than I am or anybody I know. And to think that he's like an old senile man is like just uh, hilarious. And for him to use that as a possible like escape is just hilarious to me. OK, Keith, um, go ahead. Yeah, no, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, the guy <laughs> question, if somebody sent me an email saying this is the response I got from him. I'm like, well, you know, um, if that's his, what he's, he's suggesting and, and, and I think it. It doesn't do um, anybody any respect when they say I've never read any of his work, and it's just like it's most people. He, he's the ice cream, <laughs> he's the ice cream guy, he's the anti fish oil guy, and it's like just spend a couple of years reading the articles on his website, then it's going to take you that long to kind of you know really get a, a good grasp of what's being said here, and then try and just come back with a, an original thought yourself and and and. and, and, and <laughs> That's very hard to do for some people. Okay, Keith, this was a complete total pleasure. Tell everybody where they can find you on the internet. So talk about your Instagram and then we'll talk about your website again. Yeah, so that's uh, me on Instagram, Tom Littlewood. My website is balancedbodymind.com. Um and that's pretty much it. I I I, I kind of did have a look at Twitter recently. I only keep reposting Gert Band and Bosch and Robert Malone stuff. Um, uh, but I have like nobody, no followers. And I made a tweet the other day and literally it's like that picture of Pablo Escobar sitting in the swimming pool on his own in a swing. I just thought, yeah, I'm not going to bother with Twitter. I can't be bothered, but I, I just, I, I'm not a big fan of social media and I just do it just to, to stay relevant with work. So, uh, it's pretty much Instagram and, uh, and, and Facebook really. Amazing. Keith, stay on the line. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you for everybody that w woke up and is watching right now. Uh, give this episode a like. Sincerely appreciate it. I don't know what we're going to do next week, but Ray is going to be on the 29th with Georgie. Might film like a Q&A or something uh, next week. So again, 
Keith, thank you so much taking time away from your family to chat with me. Uh, 10 years in the making, so sincerely appreciate it. And you're just a wealth of knowledge. So uh, thank you so much for taking the time. Appreciate it. Thank you, Danny. Thanks for having me on. Much appreciated. Okay. Take care, everybody. Talk to you guys soon. Peace out.